Our two scripture readings today, the first one comes to us from Isaiah chapter 6, and the second from Luke chapter 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him, each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the thresholds shook at the voices of those who called in the house, filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Once, while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night long but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And then Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. <laughs> and when they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be Thank you, Andrew, and to our choirs, both of our choirs this morning. And again, thank you all for, for being here this day. Today is one of those extraordinary Sundays in which all the lectionary readings seem to line up and speak with a single voice. Isaiah has this vision of God that Andrew read about just a moment ago. He's struck by his own unworthiness, but nevertheless, he is sent out to to preach. In the epistle lesson, and we're not referring to that one today, but it would have been from 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul sees the risen Lord and realizes he's unfit to be called an apostle. It's not for him. He's not able to do that because he had persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, he ends up working harder than anyone else and making a huge difference in the ongoing life of the church. And in the gospel lesson from Luke 5, 
Simon Peter gets a glimpse of the power and knowledge of Christ, falls down before him in the grip of his own sinfulness, but even so he's called by Christ to become a fisher of men and women, to catch people. And so our theme emerges. I started with called while unworthy, but I want to switch that a little bit and talk about called while inadequate. CWI, not to be confused with DWI, which is another story for another day. But it seems to me that CWI is a theme that runs throughout Scripture from Genesis to maps, as someone has said. Many Bibles used to have maps in them after the book of Revelation, so people talked about, I believe it all, from Genesis to maps. Now consider some of the characters that God called, characters that were unique and sometimes strange ways help God's will be done on earth as it was in heaven. Characters who were called while inadequate. There was Abraham who in order to save his own skin passed off or tried to pass off his wife as his sister. There was Jacob later named Israel, who was a trickster, much more than a practical joker, cheating his brother Esau out of his birthright, causing him to miss the blessing of his father Isaac. And there was Rahab, a woman of the evening who hid Israelite spies on the roof of her home in Jericho and saved their lives. Rahab, if you do the ancestry.com thing on Jesus, you'll discover her name. We need to be careful sometimes about climbing too high up in our own family trees. Now what about King David, a man after God's own heart, whose own heart led him in a multitude of sins, the breaking of several commandments in one misguided incident. In the New Testament, there was the aforementioned Apostle Paul whose script was flipped, so to speak, on the Damascus Road. An area, by the way, where lightning strikes are not uncommon when you talk about Paul being blinded by the light. Called while inadequate, and that's only a sampling of the many folks in Scripture who made a difference, but who started off unworthy and inadequate, not qualified. Now then, back to the Old Testament lesson, the call while inadequate of the prophet Isaiah. Like the Old Testament lesson for last Sunday where we talked about Jeremiah and Jeremiah's call, Isaiah chapter six is the report of a prophet's vocation. How it all started. While Jeremiah's account concentrates upon an encounter with the word of God, Isaiah six closely parallels the first three chapters of the book of Ezekiel and this picture, these reports, visions of the heavenly throne. How overwhelming that must have been. Neither Isaiah or Ezekiel sees God directly, but both have a sense or give a sense of being on the outskirts of the heavenly throne room and hearing the deliberations that are going on in there. The date that begins Isaiah's report also sets the mood. The year that King Isaiah died would have been 742 BC, we think. But that king's death signaled the end of an era of relative independence for the kingdom of Judah. 
During most of Isaiah's lifetime, his nation lived under the threat of Assyrian domination. They were frightened, they were conquered, they were overpowered. The prophet was active in that situation for some 40 plus years. The date, however, is mainly a preface to the description of what happens when you see God as a ruler on a throne. That God's train, so to speak, filled the temple, suggests that all of this was happening on the outskirts of the temple, just the entrance to the sacred precincts, and most likely that the Ark of the Covenant was seen as the throne of God or a symbolic throne of God. Other examples of Worship that took place in the temple back then are in this passage. The antiphonal hymn, the responsive hymn of praise sung by the seraphim and the fact that the temple was filled with smoke, probably from the sacrifices that were burned there day and night. The seraphim who attend the Lord must cover both their feet and their fate. To say that they covered their feet is a euphemism that they cover their nakedness and they covered their faces because no one can see God directly and live to tell about it, so folks thought. Isaiah responds to the scene with a cry of woe similar to a confession of sin and an expression of mourning for both himself and his people. Confronted with the presence of the Lord, he knows he's unclean. Though he would have been judged by priestly criteria as clean, ritually clean, as a priest, as he was approaching the temple, there were certain ritual cleanliness kind of things he had to do. And in reaction to the confession, one of the seraphim performs a ritual of purification, combining word and deed, takes one of those coals, hot coals from the altar and touches Isaiah's mouth and pronounces that his guilt is removed and his sin is forgiven. The vision report reaches a climax when the prophet overhears God asking the heavenly court. God is saying to those who are with God, what do we do? Who shall we send? Somebody's got to go and take the word. And the prophet was called while unqualified, called while unworthy, called while inadequate, CWI, but what a ministry he had over four decades. He said, here I am, send me. Called while inadequate. Let's move on to the gospel lesson, which was from Luke chapter five. It's a description of the call of the first disciples. It's definitely an epiphany text. Remember, we're in the season of epiphany, and epiphany is a revelation. It's a pulling back of the curtain. It's showing us what, what God is up to. The call comes after Jesus' ministry in Nazareth, and then there's an exorcism in Capernaum, and then there's a healing of Simon's mother-in-law, and after many healings and exorcism in that city, and after many preaching tours, and such a growing popularity that the crowds were pressing against him. He had to get into the boat and push out a bit so that he could be heard and not overwhelmed. Jesus' own success meant that he had to have some helpers, had to have some followers, some servants, some disciples, couldn't do it all. And that's shown in the sending out of the 70 later on in the story to take out the message of Jesus to all the folk. And the work of Jesus anticipates the spread of the gospel as described in the book of Luke, book of Acts, I'm sorry. And we think that Luke wrote Luke and Acts. 
And folks were called to be a part of that church, called to a ministry, called to servanthood, so that the good news could be shared with the world. More workers were needed. And the disciples Jesus calls are responding to a Jesus who has demonstrated power to which they are witnesses. They've seen and heard things that other folks hadn't seen and heard. They're following a compelling Christ, not a boring stained glass window kind of figure, but someone who compelled them to come and, and great things are in store. In that passage from Luke 5, 1 through 11, Simon Peter appears for the first time in the gospel of Luke, even though he's mentioned by name in that earlier account where he went and healed where Jesus went home and healed Simon's mother-in-law. The story centers on Simon, so much so that his partners are unnamed and unnumbered until later in the story when James and John are named, but not Andrew, not Peter's brother. The remarkable catch of fish reminds us of things that happened back in Elijah's time and Elisha's time. A barrel that continued to be full and oil that continued to be in abundance and all those things where God provided for God's people. And again, that's happening right here, this whole catch of fish. When Simon Peter realized how many fish had been caught, so many that the nets were breaking and the boat was sinking, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. I can't stand to be in your presence. In other words, I'm unworthy. I'm unqualified. I'm inadequate. But his sin did not disqualify him from serving Jesus. The same power that caused him to fall on his knees now lifts him up and puts him in the service of Jesus and he'll be about the business of catching people. And the word translated catch here is not trying to hook somebody with a hook in the side of their mouth like we think about when we talk about fishing sometimes, but talking about catching people, rescuing people, saving them from death and destruction. And even as he rose to prominence in the church, do you think Simon Peter ever forgot the day when he knelt at the knees of Jesus in that smelly fishing boat and his life was forever changed? Called while inadequate. Have any of us ever felt that way? I know that I have, and there are a lot of days when I still do candidates for ministry in the Methodist and later the United Methodist Church are often asked about our call stories, especially as we move through that lengthy process that leads to being commissioned and then ordained. And I want to share a little bit about my call story. I think I've told individuals and I've talked about it in small groups before. I'm not sure I've told you as a congregation. My call story began in the Stewart Avenue United Methodist Church in Southwest Atlanta. I was strongly influenced by some folks there. We had an associate pastor once who was a student at the Candler School of Theology, and he was preaching one night, a Sunday evening service, things that we used to do. And I felt this overwhelming feeling, spirit force come over me, and, and it just, the thought came to my mind and to my heart, Charles, this is what God wants you to do. And as I wrestled with that call and thought about it more, a few years later, we had another pastor came, this time a senior pastor. The church had shrunk some in that part of Atlanta. 
and he was a student when he came to us. He was in his mid to late 20s. And his name was Ronnie Rowe. And I saw for the first time that you could be a pastor and still have a sense of humor and still have, <laughs> and still have a life and not be like something in a stained glass window somewhere where that just didn't seem to fit. Not what I felt like I was being called to. Ronnie was real. He said some things that I'd never heard pastors say in church. He was just a real somebody. He had a wife and two boys, two small children. He used to kid a lot about being 30. He knew he was going to be 30 soon, and it frightened him, and he talked about how old that was. <laughs> Have mercy. But the phone call came one morning, and we realized, I realized, my mother told me that Ronnie had, had died suddenly with a cerebral hemorrhage. And at the memorial service, the pastor who was officiating said that when Ronnie had died, one of his little boys had asked his mother, he said, Mama, who's going to preach now? And I heard that story, and it was the affirmation that I think I was looking for. And... Uh, so I began this journey, and I often stop and think about what would Ronnie have said about that, what would he think I would like to talk with him about, so many things. But a sense of call is a very powerful, it's a life-changing kind of thing, and it's not something we can just pick up if we choose to or put down when times are hard. Bishop Arthur J. Moore, and I don't know if any of you remember him, remember hearing about him, Bishop of the South and North Georgia Conferences years ago. In 1949, he was the founding force, I believe, behind Epworth by the Sea in St. Simon's Island. And I know that some folks used to jokingly refer to him. His name was Bishop Arthur J. Moore, and they referred to him as King Arthur. And uh, I think that said something maybe about the way that he went about his task and the way he appointed preachers and other things. And I never knew him, but this is a little bit of a sideline. I was with my youngest son once, and we were at Westview Cemetery in Atlanta visiting some folks, and we went in that huge mausoleum, and I was standing there talking to my son about all kinds of things, and I looked down, and I was standing right by the crypt of Bishop Arthur J. Moore, and I told my son, be careful what you say. He might still be listening. But he used to say, King Arthur, Bishop Moore used to say, if you just decided to pick up the ministry, you better put it down. And then there was another pastor, and I heard him speak once, but I read all of his books. He was a Southern Baptist preacher. He called himself a bootleg Baptist preacher. He uh, from Mississippi, involved in the civil rights movement. Will Campbell was his name. And he would often complain about the difficulties of ordained ministry and how tough his church was and what a difficult life it was. And when his friends would ask him, just, or they'd say, just quit your whining. Why don't you just quit? And he would reply, let me quote his words, not that I would say it like this, but he said, I can't quit, damn it. I was called. <laughs> Being called while inadequate, not only a clergy thing, we believe in, and it's not just something we say that sounds really neat, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. And everyone who opens their door to the heart when Jesus stands knocking 
is called to be a follower of Christ, a servant of Christ, a disciple. What is your ministry, inside or outside of the church? And sometimes I know you're, you're facing up this way and you don't get to see the beautiful wind as much as I do in the back over the balcony of Christ knocking on the door, knocking on the door of all of our hearts. What is your ministry? What is God calling you to do? I once knew of a pastor of a very large church who would, aware, who would often say to his congregation on Sunday morning, turn around and tell somebody sitting next to you what your ministry is in this church. I wouldn't do that to you without warning, but that's something to, <laughs> and maybe that is a warning, but uh, what are you up to? Jesus has knocked on the door of your heart. What's your ministry? What's your calling? You do have a calling. And don't any of you be saying, well, I'm unworthy, I don't qualified, I'm inadequate. Because if you say those things, I might just say to you, so what's the point? What's your point? Amen. Oh,